And thank you for tuning in to our sermon podcast from Connect Church. We'd like to invite you to join us in person at 1101 West Grand in Ponca City, Oklahoma, or on Facebook Live. Go to connectchurchpc.com to learn more about how we are helping people connect every day. We are a people, connected people, all in God's love. realize what those terms mean, and, and, I, and I use this, and I even use this as a lesson when I was talking with Lance this week, and I said, according to the Bible, we are to honor our parents. And honor is not something that you've earned. Honor is something that you're given because of your position. And I said, even though you don't agree with everything that your mom and dad tell you, and they say, hey, you can't do this, you can't do this, you still honor them. And as kids, you might be thinking, man, I love running through the house with scissors. But mom and dad had the strict rule, no running with scissors. Even though dad runs with scissors, we're not allowed to do it. As kids, we honor what our parents say. And we do what they say. Here's the thing. Sometimes as children, I know that you guys are the smartest people in the room, and you got it all figured out, and keep it going. Because when you turn 25, you realize you're not the smartest person in the room anymore. But your parents have been around the block a couple of times. And so I, I share stories every once in a while with my, my, my kids about learning and, and growing up. And I lived in a much more dangerous time. And by dangerous, I mean we didn't wear helmets when we rode bicycles. If you fell down and hit your head, you learned not to do that on a bike again, right? Now they fall down, they bump their head like, hey, you know, that was so much fun, let's do it again. We're like, no, 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 let's not do that again. That was not fun. And I tell this story, and Jack loves this story about my friend back in the 80s. They used to have these campers that went on the backsides of pickups, and his family had sold their pickup. They kept the camper part, and so we'd use it to do some fun things in. Well, we pushed it out into the alleyway, and we put a two-by-four on it, and we decided to go down and ramp it. Since my brother was the oldest, he got to go first, which is completely unfair. But my, my friend, even though I was the youngest, let me go second, which was really cool. And so my brother goes, and he ramps it, and I mean, it looked beautiful. Wheel goes up in the air, lands on the other side, goes down the alley, hits the brakes, everything's cool. So then it's my turn to go, and I did the same thing, and we're trying to cross. There was a street here, and it was called C Street in McCook, Nebraska, and we were trying to leap over C Street and to see if we could get the furthest. And, and so my brother, he leaped it, no problem at all. I, I leaped it. I didn't get as far as he did, but that was okay because he's three years older than me, and, and I'm totally cool with that. Well, then it was my friend Ryan's turn to do it, and he starts coming down, and my brother and I are sitting there right at C Street, and we're watching, we're cheering him on, and about that time, we see a car turn and start coming down C Street, and we start waving our hands going, stop, don't stop, don't stop. Ryan didn't see us. He thought we were cheering him on, going, yeah, go, go, go. We were not cheering him on. We were telling him to stop, and he hits the ramp, and right as he gets to the top and he leaps up, 
he sees the car coming, and he slams on the brakes. The problem is the bike had no air brakes. And so he's flying through the air, brakes peeled. He did something stupid. Never do this. When you're ramping a camper, never turn your wheel in midair. Okay, guys, you get this? Keep your wheel straight because when you land, it's a good thing. Well, he turned his wheel, and so when he landed, he tumbled over. Luckily, the car saw him. car wasn't going very fast. Hit his brakes. He watched Ryan go fly into the air. He actually watched Ryan hit the ground. The wheel turn, flip, and tumble over a couple times. And not wearing a helmet, by the way, Ryan gets up, shakes his head, and goes, I'm good to go, guys. I'm good to go. Sometimes we learn great lessons. And I just want to tell you, we're going to be, I'm going to be preaching from first, or Galatians chapter 5 today. And Galatians is kind of Paul's Magna Carta. It's his Declaration of Independence. It's a Declaration of Independence from old ways, the slavery, the Old Testament, to a Declaration of Independence upon God and His grace and His salvation and His sanctification. And he's calling us out, and he's calling us to go forward. And the, the pastor, G.K. Chesterton, from the 1800s said, America is the only country ever founded on a creed, and that creed was the Bible. Now, I'm not saying that all of our founding fathers were perfect. They weren't. But they had a guiding principle. 52 of the 56 had a guiding principle of God in their lives. And whenever we take God out of the equation, we start having problems. I was in college. And I had a guy who was a couple years older than me. His name is Brian Wall. And Brian was studying to be a history teacher, secondary education. And we were one time, we were just talking about U.S. history. And I love U.S. history, and, and, I, and I study U.S. history. And I remember when we were talking about different things that happened, and this is what Brian said. He said, whenever our vertical relationship is not right, our horizontal relationship can't be right. He said, look at it, in the United States history, when we were not where we needed to be with God, our vertical relationship couldn't be. But get this, even though we weren't doing things as a nation that were right before God, there were revival fires that were burning. There were people that were getting excited about God. So in the 1800s, when as a country we were being torn apart, there was a rumbling of revival that was taking place. There were campground revivals where people were coming together, lives were being changed, people were being saved, people were stepping out in the ministry, and they were being called of God. It was called the Second Great Awakening. Sometimes we just need to be awakened by God. If you ever want to truly study history, and I, I mean truly get into history, there, there's, there's a father-son duel, David Barton and David Barton Jr., and they are tremendous at letting you know the true history. I, I get upset when I hear people say, well, this is historical. I'm like, nah, it's not even close to it. Because when you go and you look at our current history books, they take so much out of it that we don't realize that God's at work. And sometimes we do the same thing with people's lives. We want to hear their story of what is going on, but we don't want to hear what God is doing. And here we go. In, in Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, It is for freedom that Christ set us free. Stand firm and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you all. Again, I declare to every man who lets him be circumcised, that he is obliged to the law, the whole law. You are trying to be justified by the law. You have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. But by faith we eagerly await 
the spirit of righteousness for which we hope for. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. For those agitators, I wish they would go all the way and emasculate themselves. So I've got my favorite story about circumcision. Actually, i got a couple of them, and I'll share them with you, and you'll love these stories. And April's already shaking her head because I think she's heard these stories before. When Jack was getting ready to turn 13, we picked out four men that we wanted to speak into his life. And so uh, three of the four men happened to live in, in Bartlesville. And so we, I, I went over there. We spent a couple of days. My parents lived there. We stayed with them. It was spring break. And, and so they had no children's activities going on at the church. They had no youth activities going on at the church. And so dad said, hey, you guys are going to come with us to Bible study, right? And I'm like, uh, okay. So Jack and Les and I went with them. The Bible stayed. We're sitting in there, minding our own business. You know, they had ice cream afterwards. So I'm like, man, if we can just make it through Bible study, we get ice cream at the end. Don't judge me. And so we're sitting in there, and for some reason, Phil Cooper, and I've known Phil for almost 30 years, brings up out of the blue circumcision. It wasn't even in the text we were studying, but he, he talked about how some people are, are, are chasing after circumcision. And he goes on and on for about five minutes about circumcision. And my dad goes, well, I don't really see that in the Scripture. We can talk about that next week maybe because I think the Scripture next week will talk about that. And Phil goes, oh, that'd be great. I'd, I'd love to talk more about circumcision. Not even kidding you. So funny. Jack leans over to me and he goes, Dad, what's circumcision? I explained to him what circumcision is. If you don't know what circumcision is, go home and ask your parents. They will love that conversation with you. <clears throat> I leaned over. I explained to Jack what circumcision is. He goes, I don't think I want to be circumcised, Dad. <laughs> I go, hey, it's too late, buddy. You've already been circumcised. And so then Jack and I start laughing. And my dad who's leading the Bible study. He gives us the evil glare. And, I'm like, and, I'm like, <laughs> and so then... Because I had to protect myself, I was a pastor, I wanted people to know that I wasn't immature, it wasn't crazy. I mean, you guys know me, you know that I'm immature and crazy. I said, well, I was explaining to Jack what circumcision, told him the story, they all started laughing, and, and Phil goes, well, I never even thought that your boys wouldn't know what it is. I'm like, Jack's 12, Lance is 7. No, they don't know what it is. But my second favorite story, and I always pick on Terry's mom. Jack came home from the hospital. Bless Sheila's heart. She stayed with us for a week to, to help Terry out and to, to help me out and knowing that I'm clueless. And we, we get home and, and, and Jack had, had just been circumcised at the hospital. We bring him home and everything and, and he wet his diaper. It was a really bad wet thing and, 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 and um, his wound was, was, had reopened somehow. I'm not sure how that happened. I'm not sure how it works. If you're a doctor, you don't tell me. I don't care. But it happened. And so he's sitting there, he's crying in pain. And he's in such pain, he finally passes out from the pain. Sheila looks at me, and she goes, wow, does that hurt, Mark? I'm like, I don't remember. That's why they do it when you're an infant. 
So, never mind. Your mom's over there. She, she's, she's looking forward to this discussion at the church. And I, I'm not already having people going, texting me, thank you very much. This is a conversation I wanted to have. Other parents are like, I'm so thankful that my kids are back in children's church. <clears throat> but I, thought I, I had to share that with you. Here's what Paul is talking about. He goes, I want you to know that there are people out there that they're trying to spread false truth in the church. They're trying to preach a gospel other than Jesus Christ, and they are spreading the seed among you, and it is creating problems. It is creating discord. It's creating all kinds of issues. And Paul is stepping in and saying, we need this to stop. Christian liberty has always been grounded on both the believer's relationship with Jesus and the community of faith. So our freedom comes as our relationship with God. God set us free individually, but we experience our freedom in community when we come together. We, we, we get to experience freedom. And here's what's so cool. Your story of grace isn't my story of grace. But God works individually in each and every one of us. And when we come together, our corporate story tells how amazing God is, how amazing Jesus is. <clears throat> I know but one freedom, and that is the freedom to worship God no matter what our circumstances are. Here's what I want you to know. First thing, false teachers will continue to come at the church. They will come in and they will spread false teaching and they will tell you, hey, do this and you'll be okay. Do this and you'll be okay. But Paul is saying, you know, we've got to go against that flow. We've got to push against it and know that there's more to it than that. Hey, Kylie, the next slide has got, has got the, that first point on it. If you want to pop over the next slide. There you go. Thank you. Well, you popped over to me, but that's okay. In Galatians 5.1, it says, It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. He's saying, stand firm. Don't, don't go back to the old ways. Don't allow that slavery to come upon you. How many times have we been set free from something, would we go back to it? When I was running track in high school, we had to pull a sled and they would put weights on the sled, and sometimes if we didn't feel like carrying the weights up onto the football field, we would just have people stand on the sled, and trust me, 45-pound weights are much le weigh much less than shot putters and discus throwers, because they would get on the sled, and I'm like, I can't pull it. But what they were trying to teach us to do is to stay low, and to come out of the starting gate, and stay low, and have choppy feet, short strides, until we got running at full speed. But you know, it would be stupid of me when I got ready to run that 400 or that 300 hurdles to put that weight on me and take off. I'd been freed from that when I ran the race, and so it would seem so much easier to run without that weight. Why would I again go back to that yoke of slavery? Paul is saying, you, you've been set free. Jesus Christ died on the cross so that we don't have to go back to the old way of doing things. We don't have to go back to the old diets. We don't have to go back to the old rituals. We don't have to go back to the circumcision that set us apart because we have a circumcision of the heart. And in that, people can tell that we are followers of Jesus Christ by the way we act, by the way we speak, by the way we do things. That's how we've been set free. Why would we go back? Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that let yourselves 
that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you. Here's what's going on. People came into the church and said, hey, now that you've followed Jesus, you now have to become a Jew. Therefore, you need to be circumcised. And so here, here are men in their 30s and 40s and 50s who are becoming followers of Jesus Christ, and now they're told, you've got to be circumcised. I'm not going to go back and tell you what that's all about, but there's a great story in the Old Testament in which, uh, it's not really a great story, it's a story in the Old Testament. So Jacob had 12 sons and one daughter, Dinah. There was a man who fell in love with Dinah, but he was, uh, he was of a non-Jewish tribe, and, he, and so he jumped her and raped her. Terrible thing. Well, he came back and said, I'm so sorry I did this. And he goes, I want to be forgiven, and I want to marry Dinah. And this is what the brothers told him. The only way you can marry our sister is if you and your entire village is circumcised. Now, I don't know many people who are circumcised as adults, but through my study on it, it takes about three days to recover from that, and you're still not fully recovered. So they circumcise him. Day one, nothing happens. Day two, the 12 brothers come in and destroy and kill the entire village for revenge on what happened to their sister Dinah. So there, there's, a, there's a pain level involved there. They didn't have the, the, the pain medication that we do today. And so they were coming in and saying, now, if you truly are a follower of Christ, you're going to follow all of the Old Testament laws. You're going to be circumcised. You're going to practice the feast. You're going to practice the fasts. You're going to, do, you're going to practice the Passover. You're going to do all of these things. And Paul's going, that's not why Christ died on the cross. Jesus died on the cross not to abolish the Old Testament, but to fulfill it through him. And so now, here's what, here's what we learn from Jesus. Jesus Christ becomes our circumcision. And by that I mean, when he comes alive in us, people can tell that we are different, not because of a mark on our body, but because of the mark on our lives. And so here it is. Paul's saying, why are you allowing this to come in? Why are you believing these teachers? And then, Paul gets a little bit salty. I love it when the Apostle Paul gets salty because when he gets salty, you can really tell he's upset. He says, as for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. He says, whoever creating discord among you, whoever is coming in and spreading lies, I wish they would get everything cut off. You're like, wow, that's, that's really crazy. I can't believe it says that in the Bible. Another time, Paul got really mad, and, and there's, a, there's a Hebrew word, my favorite, no, I'm sorry, a Greek word, my favorite Greek word ever, skubalon. Does anyone know what skubalon means? It means horse manure. That's right. Just, just think on it for a moment, you'll, you'll catch it. Rachel Moore, discussions you could have with your kids when you go home today, you're welcome. And so... But he's saying, this is, this is scubalon, this is craziness. We, we need to cut away from this, and you need to come back to your relationship with God. Quit worrying about what the false teachers are bringing in and come back to one thing, and one thing alone, your relationship with Jesus Christ. When he died on the cross, when you asked and forgave you, guess what? He forgave you. It doesn't matter what else you do on the outside. And I want you to know, this is really tough because I grew up in the church, and sometimes when you grow up in the church, you have all this baggage. And by baggage, I mean you know what a Christian is supposed to look like. And I remember when I, when I first became a follower, when I first became a Christian, and I asked Jesus in my life, 
I knew what Christians looked like. They held their Bibles in a certain way. And so I, I would study them. I'm like, I wonder, because they would, they would hold the Bible. I don't have one with me. I read the Bible on my, my iPad. But they would put their finger in the middle of the Bible, and they would hold the Bible like this. And so I'd study and think, man, I wonder where their finger is. And I'd look at it, and I'm like, maybe Psalms, could be Job. I thought that's the way it had to be. And so that, that first Sunday, I grabbed my Bible, and I practiced in front of the mirror. Anybody ever practiced anything in front of the mirror? Yeah, yeah, yeah. First date I went on, I practiced my entire conversation in front of the mirror. I had the entire thing scoped out. And then Terry and I had uh, Doritos and milk. It was, it was amazing. But Paul is saying this. Our relationship isn't based on what we appear on the outside. It is based on who we are on the inside. The second thing that he talks about is external commands require universal obedience. In Galatians 5.3, he says, Again, I declare to you, to every man who lets himself be circumcised, that he is obligated to obey the whole law. He's saying you, you can't just say, you know what, I, I follow this one aspect because I follow everything. You can't just say, I'm going to pull this part out of the Old Testament, and I'm going to follow this command, but I'm not going to follow anything else. And, I, and I've shared this before. When I was a fourth grader, my parents gave me a Bible for Christmas. And that afternoon at Christmas, my mom did something. I'm not sure what she did. Probably just being a typical good mom ticked me off. I grabbed a, a magic marker, and I went in my room, and I opened up to Exodus chapter 20, where the Ten Commandments are. And guess what I marked out of my Bible? <clears throat> Honor your father and mother. I just crossed it right out. Do you think because I crossed it out, I was not obligated to obey that anymore? No. But it made me feel good. But it didn't change anything. But Paul is saying, we, we can't just pick and choose because so many times we want to pick and choose. We have a cafeteria type of, of faith, a cafeteria type of religion that only a few things, we're only going to choose what we want to follow and everything else we're going to throw away. So Terry and I, in raising our sons, can you imagine the king doesn't say, hey, we like this rule, but we don't like this rule, so we're going to follow this one, but we're not going to follow this one. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry about that. Can you imagine you tell your kids their curfew is 9 o'clock, and they come to you and say, hey, we don't like the 9 o'clock curfew, we're going to stay up until midnight. And you're like, okay. No, you're not. <laughs> I see parents pointing at kids. Here, here's the thing. If they stay up till midnight one night, wake them up at 5 o'clock the next morning, they won't do it again. You see, we can't go through this where we, we pick and choose what we're going to fall. Paul warns us that circumcision, though a matter of indifference as external right, would in their case involve an obligation to keep the whole law. There were well over 600 commands in the Old Testament that Jewish people were to follow. The craziest one is, so if you are a good Jewish person and you go to drink your, your wine because they didn't have fresh water back in the day, most of them drank wine. And so what they would do is they would put a screen on their wine goblet so as not 
to accidentally drink a gnat. Because the gnats were unclean. If you drink a gnat, then you have to go through purification. And so they wanted to make sure that they stayed pure and they stayed holy. And so they would put a screen over it. That's why Jesus says, you know, because camels are also an unclean animal. You're not to eat a camel. I've never tried one before. I'm not sure how it tastes. Probably like chicken. Jesus says you try so hard not to drink in a gnat that you'll eat a camel. We try so hard to put external pressures on this is what Christianity looks like. You see, one of the, one of the cool things about our, our denomination is we were on the forefront. We were on the first ones to send missionaries to other countries. And, and so many times we would send missionaries over to, to Africa. We'd send missionaries to Papua New Guinea. And, and I had a professor in college that was... Uh, among the first group of missionaries to go to Papua New Guinea, and he went to a place where they had never seen white people before. And he said, they called him Pink Man. And we're like, why did they call you Pink Man? And he goes, have you ever seen a white guy at 12,000 feet above sea level? He goes, we turned pink. And he said he quickly found out that we couldn't force our external principles on them. Now, there, there is heart holiness that we want to strive for. We want people to be holy, but we can't say, hey, this is the way you're to talk. This is the way you're to act. This is the way you're to be. And had all these great stories about learning and, and translating the Bible and, and them coming to life. And then he had this cool opportunity. He brought some of his people to America for general conference. And he went back with them, and, and, and he said, man, they told these stories about how we had magic doors in America. You step up to them, and they just open. And then he goes, they give you food for free in America. And he's like, no, 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 they, no, they don't. They don't give you food for free. And he goes, he said, I gave them my, my, my credit card. I'm like, yeah, but they gave it back to you. They just give you free food. It's so abundant in America. It's free. But he said, learning the world through their eyes was amazing. He said, or when they had elders that would talk about World War II and didn't know that the world was at war during World War II because they were separated. They didn't know what was going on. And they talked about these giant birds that screamed and dropped eggs from the sky that exploded. But he learned that God calls us to heart holiness. Galatians 6.13 says, Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised so they may boast about their flesh. Not even those who look like they're perfect and have everything together are holy. But they want you to be holy. They, they want to put restraints on you. They want to put boundaries on you. They want to put all these things on you. But they're not living the life. Growing up in the holiness tradition in the Wesleyan church, I would talk to people who were just a little bit older than me. I mean, not much older than me, but they would talk about at youth camp when they would go swimming. They have a day where the girls would go swimming that was separate from the day the guys would go swimming, and, and it was to keep everybody pure and everybody holy, but yet they made it sound sinful to go swimming together, because you know what they called it? Mixed bathing. I'm like, that just sounds sinful. But in our earnestness, 
to keep people pure, to keep people holy. He never taught them what it, was, what it meant to have a heart for God. To truly want to follow God. And so we're able to put up a, qu- a cool front and let everybody know, hey, on the outside, I look like I've got all together, but on the inside, everything's falling apart. And so the Judaizers, they wanted everyone to be under a yoke of what they grew up with because they didn't, want, they didn't understand the freedom. Christian grace is superior to external commands. In Galatians 5, 4 and 5, it says, you're trying to be justified by the law, have been alienated from Christ, you've fallen away from grace, but by faith we eagerly wait through the Spirit, the righteousness for which we hope. We're so much trying to be justified by grace, but yet that is so hard for us to understand. So you've heard the story of the prodigal son, the son that runs away and, and wastes all of his money and comes back to dad, and his dad kills the fatted calf and, and invites him back in and, and says, hey, you're part of the family again. But the other part of the story is the older son. And the older son is angry because he'd done everything right. You ever been there? You ever get frustrated because you've done everything right and somebody else has done everything wrong and yet they're celebrating and you're like, hey, I put in the hard work. I've realized I'm now at that point in life where I start saying, hey, I put in the hard work. And I have to ask God to continually soften my heart so I don't say, well, look what I've done. Look what I've done. Because no matter what I've done, no matter the work I've put in, I can't earn my way to Jesus. None of us can. We're relying upon the grace of God. And finally, through Christ, we have a righteousness for which we hope. But by faith, we eagerly wait for the Spirit, the righteousness for which we hope. I want to read you a quote. It says, you feel you were hedged in, <clears throat> you feel you were hedged in, you dream of your escape, but beware of mirages. Do not run or fly away in order to get free. Rather, dig in the narrow place which has been given you. You will find God there in everything. God does not float on your horizon. He sleeps in your substance. Vanity runs, love digs. If you fly away from yourself, your prison will run with you, and you will close in because of the wind of your flight. If you go down deep into yourself, you will disappear in paradise. There's a quote of Gustav Thibben. But as Jesus said this, whoever loses his life will find it. Sometimes our, our problem is this. We don't teach people how to dig deep in Christ. And so because we haven't learned to dig deep, we haven't learned to, to read the Bible, we haven't learned to, to pray and to ask God to speak to us, any wives' tale, anything that sounds remotely good tickles our ears. And we're like, well, I like that. That sounds good to me. But it's not. J.B. Phillips says, but whoever, but whoever it is who is worrying you will have the serious change 
charged to answer someday. Whoever it is who's causing the worry, whoever it is that's causing you to stumble, they're going to have to answer that someday. And the question is this, who cut in on you? Galatians 5.7, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? In 3.1, he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Here's the question. You're running a good race. You're chasing after God, and someone stepped in front of you. My senior year, in, in one of the, the races I was running, I ran a 4 by 400 relay, which meant each one of us four ran a lap around the track as fast as you could. It's a man's race. It really is. And I remember, I always ran third leg, and I loved running third leg because I could, I could outrun people, and I could catch them from behind. And I remember I was coming around on the last corner, and I'm passing this guy, I'm coming on the outside, and he cleated me. Most likely accidental. I don't think he did it on purpose. I mean, it would have really been a feat to do it on purpose. But at that moment in my mind, all I'm thinking is, you cleated me. You cleated me. And I just kept running faster. Uh, he didn't cleat me again. Then I did something that may or may not have been ethical. I cut him off. He fell to the ground. No, that's not a yes thing. That's a, that's a bad thing. That's a, Mark, what were you thinking? You, you, you need to go and repent. You need to go and pray. You need to look this guy up and apologize after 30 years. I mean, I bet you that guy's having nightmares in this day of what you've done to him. He probably didn't get married because of that one event. I know he didn't. But here's the thing. He fell down because I cut him off. And Paul's asking this, you're running a good race, and yet you allowed someone to cut you off. You allowed someone to, to trip you up. You've allowed someone to take you off course. You know what I've learned of going and watching cross-country events? Cross-country is the dirtiest, meanest sport around. Because when you get ready to pass somebody, they will reach over and they will hit you. You're going through a corner, they will pull you down. And, and so... One time I, I'm watching, and, and, and Jack is doing really good, and I go, come to the finish line, and I'm watching all these way ahead of him. I'm like, where's Jack? About that time, a gator pulls up, and Jack's in the back of the gator. I'm like, dude, what happened? He goes, someone pushed me down a ravine. And I'm like, that's such a big lie. Just tell me you fell down a ravine. Tell me you got tired. You fell down the ravine. You pretended to get hurt. Tell me that. He's like, Dad, somebody pushed me off the cliff. You're not getting a dog today. <laughs> but here's what, here's what Paul is saying. We're running this good race. Someone cut us all. Someone pushed you down the cliff. What made you stop? You see, in the church, we're, we're, we're battling a lot of false doctrine that's out of there. And so there's a, there's a doctrine, there's a theology that's popped up, and it has its roots through Karl Marx. It's called liberation theology. And you're saying, well, why are you so anti-Marxist? What's, what's your problem with Karl Marx? Marx felt this, that the government could replace God. And so if you don't like your life, don't worry. Put your faith in the government, and we will take care of you because we are your new God. It, it's what they did in the Soviet Union. It's what they did in Cuba. It's why people would risk their lives to leave that socialist stuff behind because they realized that's what it was about. 
And so in liberation theology, they're like, hey, just put your trust in, in us and we'll take care of you. We'll make everything work out. You see, Karl Marx, here's what he did on Palm Sunday. He stripped down naked, rode on the back of a donkey into Paris to make fun of Christians, to mock Jesus Christ. We feel the onslaught. A few weeks ago, you may have seen Terry and I post something about some of the, some of the issues that come up. And we talked about a, a term called critical race theory, which comes right out of this Marxist manifesto. And what it is, it's, it's, it, it is racist to its core. And it's telling us that just because you were born a certain color, you should ask for forgiveness for being born that color, and it was always your fault that you were born that color. Here's what I always tell people. When they, when they ask me, hey, are, are you sorry about this? Are you sorry about that? We did some terrible things as a nation. I'm not even going to lie about it. But I always tell people, I'm only a third generation in America, and we were too poor to be a part of the people that kept other people down. We were just poor migrant farmers. Do I think that we should pay the price over and over again of past generations? No. I think we should acknowledge that there was sin done. But I don't think that it should drive everything that we do. Adam and Eve sinned. And because of that, we inherited a sin. But you know what? Each and every one of us sinned. And so when we ask for forgiveness, we ask for forgiveness of that sin. And when Jesus Christ forgives us, you know what happens? It's gone. Can you imagine if I walked back over and over again and said, hey, Jesus, remember that time when I was five and I opened up my brother's piggy bank and I took all of his rolled up dollar bills? God would say, well, I forgave you about that. I don't know what you're talking about. Now, when God saved me, he brought that to mind and said, you need to make this right. So I went to my brother. I wasn't sure how many rolled up dollars he had. But I said, hey, um, I stole money from you one time. I'm not sure how much it is. I go, but here's all the money I have in my piggy bank. I, I feel like I owe this back to you. Because I had created an offense. I had sinned. We need to take a stand sometimes as a church and say false doctrine is false doctrine. We, we need to take a stand and say, you know what, we... We measure people in their own merits. The Chinese had this great proverb that says, no matter how tall your grandfather is, you have to do your own growing. We have to be able to step out and say, you know what? We're different. God has saved us. Paul says that kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. Now get this, a little bit of yeast affects the, the whole the whole dough, we allow a little bit of false doctrine to come in. We allow a little bit to come in and say, ah, we will we'll tolerate it, just a little bit. But God says it'll destroy everything. Some of the things that we allowed to creep into the, into the church, I never knew this when I was in college and we were studying it, but there was a theory among southern churches in the United States that there were two different heavens, one for black people, one for white people. Of course that's wrong. You see, 
we as the Wesleyan Church, we took a stand and we said, you know what, it is wrong to worship separately. We should worship together. We should come together. And, and everybody is equal at the foot of the cross. And I've shared the story before. We had a church in North Carolina called Freedom's Church, pastored by Adam Crooks. And it was the first church in North America where whites and blacks worshiped equally together. That church is now on the campus of Southern Wesleyan University, and you can go up and touch the side of that church, and you can feel the bullet holes where they were trying to get people to stop worshiping in there. You see, when our relationship with God isn't right, our horizontal relationships can't be right. There were great evils done to the Native American people in America. But there were also Christian missionaries who kept trying to stop it, and nobody would listen to them. Another Methodist by the name of Brainerd started a school to help them, to protect them, save them. But here's the great thing. Here's a redeeming factor. God saves us. God sets us free. No matter what our history is, no matter what we've done, when we come to Christ, he forgives us. You know what the next great sin of America is? Abortion. 1973. Do you know in New York City, more African American babies are aborted every year than are born alive? Doesn't that make you sick? But sometimes we turn our heads and say, well, it doesn't affect me because it's not happening in my backyard. But God says, you know what? I'm calling you, church. I'm calling you a difference. I'm calling you to pray. I'm calling you to say, God, use me. I, I want to be used by God. I want to step out. I don't want to be chained up anymore in the yoke of slavery, but I want to be set free from God, by God. And so God calls us. What are we doing? In Mariner's Museum in Newport News, Virginia, there's a special display of a rickety homemade aluminum kayak. Its tiny makeshift boat seems oddly out of place in the midst of displays of impressive naval vessels and artifacts from the significant battles on sea. But a bronze plaque tells museum visitors the story behind this kayak's heroic makers. In 1966, an auto mechanic named Lariano and his wife Consuelo decided that they could no longer live under the oppression of Cuba's totalitarian regime. After spending months collecting scrap metal, they pieced together a boat just barely big enough for two small people. Then Loriano's rigged a small lawnmower engine on the back of the kayak. After two months of planning and the moonless night, they set out into the treacherous straits of Florida with only their swimsuits on. They had enough food and water for two days. After 70 hours, the U.S. Coast Guard rescued the couple just south of the Florida Keys. Was it worth the risk? Here's what Loriano says. When one has grown up in liberty, you realize how important it is to have freedom. We live in an enormous prison, which is Cuba, 
where one's life is not worth one crumb, where one goes into the street and does not know whether or not one will return because the political police can arrest you without any warning and put you in prison. Before this could happen to us, we thought that going in the ocean and risking death or being eaten by sharks is a million times better than to stay suffering under political oppression. Can you imagine risking everything to find physical freedom that we could experience, that you could experience freedom to worship God? Terry and I, several years ago, were at Voice of the Martyrs, and, and they were talking about the underground church in China. And Chinese people, they were, they were minded, they only came to worship God, and someone set off a bomb in the building. And hundreds of people died. And all they were doing was worshiping Jesus. We take it so for granted, don't we? We take it for granted that when someone sees us, we can say, God bless you, without worrying about being arrested. We, we take it for granted that when I, when I go out to eat, I can grab my boy's hands and we can pray. I can grab Terry's hand and we can pray. We, we take it for granted. Therefore, because it's so second nature to us, it doesn't seem that important to us. We take it for granted that Jesus Christ loves us so very much. And he set us free. Why would I ever go back to slavery? Several years ago, a musical artist by the name of Keith Green wrote a song that said, so you want to go back to Egypt. We've been set free, and we long for the days of slavery. Why? You pray with me, church? Dear God, I just pray right now, Lord. I ask you, God, just to pour out your grace and mercy upon us. I ask you, Lord, to help us to grow by faith, to stand strong by you, and to let your word be known in us. I thank you for Independence Day. I thank you more so that Christ died on the cross for us. May we enjoy this holiday and celebrate it, but may we also enjoy and celebrate the freedom that you have given us. Through Christ Jesus, we pray this in your holy and awesome name. Amen.